Thank you for listening to Hope Fellowship Church in Jaffrey, New Hampshire. We're currently going through a sermon series about King David in 2 Samuel. David was a shadow of Jesus, the King of Kings who had come to save us from our sin and offer us eternal life. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hopejaffrey.org. Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 28. 1 Samuel chapter 28. We're looking at two chapters really today as we close out 1 Samuel 28 and 1 Samuel 31. Uh, this is part two. So if you weren't here last week or you didn't hear last week, it's okay. You have time later on to listen to part one. Uh, but this is called uh, David's Last Meal and, uh, sorry, no, David's Last Resort and Saul's Last Meal, part two. Okay, so last week we looked at David's last resort where he was kind of driven to the end of himself. He had nowhere else to turn. He uh, runs to God and God answers him and gives him the victory over the, uh, uh, over the enemy. All right. Uh, this week we're looking at Saul because and the reason I put this as part one, part two, because these two things are happening back to back. Kind of like a movie will s- cut to one scene uh, that's happening and then it will cut to the other scene of the other character and they're happening at the same time. This is what the author is doing in the last couple of chapters here in 1 Samuel. These two events are happening side by side. Samuel and uh, Saul and, and David do not see each other here at the end, but they're acting at the same time. And so last week we focused on David. This week we're looking at Saul. 1 Samuel 28, we'll read it in a moment. We're going to actually walk through a, a, a good majority of this passage. This is, I'm, I'm pretty excited about this chapter because it's one of the most unique chapters in all of the Bible. In fact, I'm, I'd be hard-pressed to find another chapter with the most, uh, with as uh, unique of content as you can find. There, there are a few handfuls of things that happen in the scripture that at times I sit in my office and scratch my head. I'm like, wow, that's incredible. I don't know how to explain that fully, but it's incredible. This is some, ma- some interesting things that go on today, and I, yet I think they're, they're encouraging and yet also challenging. I think in much of preaching, that's, that's what I aim to do in many ways, is to encourage us with truth, but to not just to let you sit there and be comfortable, but to challenge you, to preach to you, to challenge you to think about things that maybe you haven't thought about very much, and I yet I think that we face on a regular basis in our culture today. All right, but the other day, my, uh, my daughter Taylor, they, my kids love coloring pages all the time. We color, and the, the other day they were painting. Uh, they, they all want to be artists and all this kind of stuff. They love that right now. And Taylor was painting a picture for me the other day, and she, they always bring it to me. Daddy, Daddy, I, I painted you a picture. So she, Taylor comes over and, and paints, and I, I see the picture, and it looks a little interesting. And I, I look at the picture, and I said, well, so tell me about your picture. And it was, she said, well, it's, um, there's a storm, and it's raining, and I, and I said, yeah, honey, well, the house, the house, is this a house? She's like, yeah, it's a house. So the house doesn't have a roof on it, honey. She's like, yeah, it's flooding, and the house is breaking down, and I, I kind of was like, oh my goodness, what, what is going on in this child's head, you know? I was like, do we need to sit down and talk about this? Because usually it's like sunflowers, and unicorns, and rainbows, and, and, and summertime, and this was a storm, lightning, raining, the house was breaking down, and it was flooding. I was like, I, and I was talking to this, and Jamie's, Jamie yells from the kitchen, well, she is your child, is what she said. And I said, what is that supposed to mean? And then I realized, okay, I kind of get it. I have a tendency at times, and maybe you just see me on Sundays, I have somewhat of a tendency towards, you know, melancholy, or at times the sad themes in movies and books and such. And I think my daughter Taylor at times does as well. She can be very serious and uh, very stubborn as well. But she has that sense in her, where the other day we were watching that movie uh, Inside Out. Now, if you guys have seen that, the different emotions inside a kid's head, and uh, there's the 
joy, uh, fear, uh, disgust, and sadness. And I think I'm missing one, but uh, what is it? Anger, yes. See, I, I just, I'm not an angry person, so I didn't think of that one, but thank you, Val. She knew that one. <laughs> no, joking. I'm sorry, sorry, sorry. No, but I, I'm saying, for me, I was actually gravitating towards the sadness one way too much to the point where I was like, ooh, this is awkward. And I just wonder if it's because I'm a pastor, I deal with funerals, and I go through these kinds of things a lot, and I'm always working with people in, a lot of times, their sadness, right? And it's funny, in that movie, sadness becomes very important, becomes very actually a key emotion that we always try to push away, uh, and yet it's something that's valuable. It's a human experience and something uh, that allows us to get through difficulty. And today, I want to look at this idea as we start out jumping into this chapter. It's, it's going to be a challenging chapter in many ways, but I think it's important for us to, to, to kind of pull back and think about what, what the passage is doing. If you were to look at history, you'll find throughout history there's theater, and novels, and stories, and narratives, and they often really fit into two major categories. It's called comedy or tragedy. Uh, and if you've ever seen a theater, they often on the side of a theater will have certain faces like this, certain, um, the, the kind of symbol of all of theater. Maybe you participated in theater in high school or such, and they would teach you about the Greek tragedy and the Greek comedy. The comedy, the smiling face, uh, for those back in the day, they used to wear these masks for the different characters that were on stage acting out the different scenes. Some of the famous Greek tragedies and such as well. The sadness themes, you could say. The comedy. We often think of today comedy just being like a stand-up comedian, right? Funny jokes. Uh, but comedy in its sense is really this sense of the human experience of happiness. You could say in some ways even just uh, happily ever after, right? They always live happily ever after. Uh, in tragedy... Do they live happily ever after? Uh, typically, there's some operatic solo or aria, and uh, everyone's dead on stage at the end, and you're like, what was the point of that, you know? That wasn't very uh, fun or enjoyable. As someone sings for an hour and a half as they're being killed or something, you're like, this is uh, not great. Uh, but this idea of comedy and tragedy, I think we can learn something from both of them. In some ways, David is the comedy. Not the funniness in some ways, but the, the, the hope the happiness, the joy, the future. It's all we're going to experience today is dark, dark tragedy. Oh, that's a, that's a tragedy, people say, right? Oh, what a tragedy. And literally today, Saul's ending. We're going to find he dies in chapter 31. And it's not just the fact that he dies, but it's in the manner in which leading up to that death that is dark and it is tragic. There's nothing, no other way to describe it in many ways. He has his last meal with a witch in darkness, in the cover of night. It's a long cry or a far cry from God's once anointed one leading the people of God to now having a meal and seeking out a medium for answers. But I, I hearken back, and I will a couple times, to 1 Samuel chapter 2. I'm just going to be referencing it as we go because it's always good to keep in mind where we came from. Many of you have been here from the beginning and you, you remember when we started 1 Samuel, we looked at Hannah. Hannah in this wonderful, in her faith, she prays and God gives her Samuel, her son. But there's this beautiful prayer that I said at the beginning of this whole series is for Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel 2 that Josh read to begin the service. But it's in that prayer that really gives us a, an outline for the entire book of First and Second Samuel. 
Hannah's prayer is prophetic. It points to so much of what we see happen in the story, in the, that He humbles the proud and He exalts the humble. That God lifts up from the poor, He lifts up those who will be the horn of His salvation. And in 1 Samuel 2.9, I stumbled upon it this week because I didn't realize how much it fits into this chapter. I'm not sure if it does perfectly, but in some ways I just saw it. In 1 Samuel 2.9, it says, He guards the steps of His faithful ones. There's the David. He's guarding the steps of the faithful ones. But the wicked perish in darkness. And that's exactly what we're going to see in Saul's life in this chapter. For a person does not prevail by his own strength, right? Does not prevail by his own strength. And in fact, later on, you'll see in verse 6 where it talks about 1 Samuel 2. I think it's verse 6. It says, the Lord humbles, he exalts, and then the Lord brings death and he gives life. And then he sends some down to Sheol and he raises others up. This Sheol is the Hebrew word for the grave, or you could, some would say the afterlife, but more in sense, this, this sense of the grave after death. And today, that's exactly what we're going to see in 1 Samuel 28. Like I said, in one of the craziest chapters in all the Bible, we're going to see this Sheol presented to us and then this raising up from the dead. And so it is through tragedy, although we do not love to press into tragedy, maybe as much as we enjoy a comedy or a joke or funny or happy, we have to press into the tragedy that we find in the scriptures to present to us the reality of life. The positive and negative, the good things, the hard things, the temptations and the trials and the hardships, the direction, the end thereof of the choice of destruction. If you leave God and go your own way, what is the end thereof? Saul is that, that, that route for us, that, that path of destruction where David is presented to us the path of life, the path of goodness. And I think in this, met, this way, we are all presented with that path in our lives, the path of Saul or path of David. I think within every single person here, you have that choice presented to you at one point or another. So let's look at 1 Samuel 28. Verse 1, I'll just read what I'm going to be doing here is we're going to walk through 1 Samuel 28. I kind of preach it as we go. I'm not going to read it all to reveal to you the story. Some of you know the story. Some of you don't, which is pretty cool, I think. Maybe you're not, you didn't grow up in church. This isn't a normal story you teach in Sunday school to kids all the time, I don't think. But let's look at 1 Samuel 28. I think it's rich with a lot of application for us. 1 Samuel 28, verse 1. At that time, the Philistines gathered their military units into one army to fight against Israel. So Achish said to David, you know, of course, that you and your men must march out in army with me. David replied to Achish, good, you will find out what your servant can do. So Achish said to David, very well, I will appoint you as my permanent bodyguard. So this is kind of highlighting the end there with David's relationship with the Philistines and King Achish at this time where he's kind of in this deceptive place of duplicity there. Verse 3 says, by this time Samuel had died. Remember that. Do you remember that from a couple of weeks? I said, hey, remember, because back I think a couple chapters ago it told us Samuel was dead. The Marleys were dead to begin with. Dead as a doornail, right? Here, Samuel's dead as a doornail. That's what it says, okay? Well, not really. But by this time, Samuel had died. All Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his city, okay? And Saul had removed the mediums and the spiritists from the land. The Philistines gathered and camped at Shunem. So Saul gathered all Israel, and they camped at Gilboa. And when Saul saw the Philistine camp, he was afraid, and his heart pounded. 
Get that? He, he was afraid. His heart pounded. Love that. It's just, he, he inquired of the Lord, it says in verse 6. But the Lord did not answer him. In dreams, or by the Urim, or by the prophets. The Urim and the Thum is something that was used in the ephod with the priest in order to kind of inquire of the Lord. So it was a representation of the priestly gift, the priestly um, position that was used in order to pray and inquire of God. So Saul did not have the Urim or the ephod or any of the priests, for he actually killed them all off. And the prophets weren't speaking to him anymore because Samuel's dead. And then he's inquiring of the Lord, but the God doesn't answer him in prayer or in dreams. Anyways, he has no place left to turn, and yet he still makes a choice that you'll see in verse 7 that would lead further towards his doom. Verse 7, he inquired of the Lord. It says, then Saul said to his servants, find me a woman who is a medium so I can go and consult her. His servants replied, there is a woman at Endor who is a medium. I'll keep reading here for a moment. I don't want to go through too far here. Let's look at verse 8. Saul disguised himself by putting on different clothes. He set out with two of his men. They came to the woman at night. And Saul said, consult a spirit for me. Bring up for me the one I tell you. But the woman said, you surely know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the spiritists from the land. Why are you setting a trap for me to get me killed? We'll pause there. You recognize here that he's inquiring. He goes at night. He covers himself at nighttime in order to not be seen. He disguises himself and he goes to this woman who's a medium or a necromancer or a conjurer, whatever word you might say. Some other translations just use the word witch. But this concept of someone who speaks with the dead, communes with the dead, practices witchcraft. Saul himself had already said these people are not to be allowed in the land, for it said earlier that he had already removed the mediums and the spiritists from the land. But when it was convenient and served his needs and he did, and it got him what he wanted, he was able to find one who was in hiding. That's why she becomes a little bit nervous that I don't want to tell you I'm a medium because you're going to have me killed or thrown in jail. And we recognize this is not just Saul's idea, and this is not just something that Saul says, this is a bad thing, we need to not have this. This is written in the law. In fact, multiple places, Leviticus 19.31, Leviticus 20, Deuteronomy 14, Deuteronomy 18, Deuteronomy 26, it mentions the fact that this is an abominable practice. It says this, in Leviticus, I believe it is, it says, when you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or daughter as an offering. Child sacrifice, common during that day, even practiced today, even many places in the world. Anyone who practices divination should not be found among you. Anyone who tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer. Verse 11 says, or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. And whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations of the Lord, your God is driving them out before you. You should be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations which you are about to dispossess, listen to, uh, listen, they listen to fortune tellers. They listen to diviners. But as for you, the Lord, of God, the Lord your God, or Yahweh, has not allowed you to do this. This is a moment in 
in the life of Saul where he's faced with a challenge. Remember last week, David is faced with a difficult challenge. He's in a difficult spot, and he inquires of the Lord, and the Lord answers him. Here, Saul's in a difficult spot. The Philistines are at his doorstep and amassing a great army against him. And, and Saul, Saul is fearful. He runs at night trying to get help. He's already kind of dug himself this grave already. But I think of, of times in history when other leaders in history, uh, one of my favorite leaders, I've read a couple books, and, and there's a wonderful movie called The Darkest Hour uh, about the life of Winston Churchill. He's always one that I've just been fascinated with. And he, here's a moment where he gives his, a speech uh, where it's called the, I think it's called the Fight on the Beaches speech, where the impending invasion of Britain was coming. They weren't sure what was going to happen. And, and he gives this incredible speech where Churchill is faced with a difficult situation. It doesn't seem like the history that we know of what happens. They didn't know that, and they weren't sure it was happening. Dunkirk was, was happening at a similar time, and they were afraid of what could happen. And yet, he says this in a, in a speech. He rallies the troops. He rallies uh, the parliament. He rallies these people. And he says, even though large tracts of Europe and many old and famous states have fallen or may into the grip of the Gestapo and the odious apparatus of the Nazi rule. We, the uh, British, we shall not flag or fail. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and the oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight in the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And some of you are like, yeah, let's never surrender, right? You know, even that, and it doesn't even mean anything for you. But incredible speech that he gave to his nation at a time of desperate peril. This is kind of what we're expecting Saul to do. Saul, lead the people, be the king that we want you to be. This is what we've been hoping he would become all through the book of 1 Samuel. But instead of leading the people, we shall fight on the beaches, we will fight. We've taken down Goliath before, we can do it again through God's help. No, instead he says he's afraid. His heart pounded within him, and he ran away at nighttime to go seek a witch for help. How the mighty have fallen, is it not? How far has he come from God? And so we read on. The story gets even more strange. Verse 9, and this woman in verse 9, this medium says, why are you setting a trap to get me killed? Verse 10. Verse 10 says, Then Saul swore to her by the Lord. Again, the irony here is dripping. He, by Yahweh's name, right? He's talking to a witch, okay? And he's swearing by Yahweh's name that she won't be hurt. It's ridiculous. By the Lord, as surely as the Lord lives, no punishment will come to you from this, right? This is ridiculous. You can just feel the tension and the irony. Verse 11 who is it that you want me to bring up for you? And the woman asked. And then Saul said, bring up Samuel for me. The prophet, the priest, he answered. Then verse 12. Then the woman saw Samuel and she screamed. And then she asked Saul, why do you deceive me? You are Saul. But the king said to her, don't be afraid. What, what do you see? What do you see? This ghostly figure has appeared, and she says, I, I see a spirit form coming up out of the earth, the woman asked. The woman answered, sorry, verse 14, and Saul asked her, what does he look like? 
An old man is coming up, she replied. He's wearing a robe. Then Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he knelt low with his face to the ground and paid homage. What in the world is going on, right? He, 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 the passage I read here, he, he sends some down to Sheol and he raises others up. Here, literally raising Samuel in a spirit form from the dead to commune and talk with Saul, as we're going to see in a moment. It's extraordinarily unique. As she says in verse 12, we'll reference it later, but the woman saw Samuel and she screamed. She was afraid. This is a shocking, sudden scene. We wonder later on as we think about this, we'll talk about this in a moment, but whether she was expecting anything to happen or she was looking to constantly, uh, it seems like something she was seeing for the first time. She seemed shocked. She did not expect this to happen. In fact, in the way it happened, it happened so suddenly that she didn't even have time to conjure anything up. God's already brought Samuel before them. It's incredible. And then he recognizes Samuel. How? Because it seems as if Saul cannot see Samuel. The woman is the one who is able, the medium here is able to see him in some form. But, but Samuel is spotted by something significant. What is it that we recognize Samuel as? He's wearing something. What was he wearing? He's wearing a robe. That might sound insignificant to you, but that robe has served a purpose of a teaching uh, element or a, a picture, an illustration throughout the storyline. As the robe that, that, that Saul wore and really the robe that, and his garments that, that David gave to Jonathan. And yet also this robe that Samuel wore, that Saul, when he disobeyed God and blasphemed God in so many ways by going his own way, he falls down and he rips Samuel's robe. Do you remember that? And then Samuel says, by the, the robe that you rip, is, God is going to rip the kingdom from your hands. You have torn my robe, and you, God, will tear the kingdom from your hands. And then we see this same thing happening when David is presented with a chance to kill, Dave, uh, to kill Saul in the, in the cave. David has a chance to take Saul out, and instead, he cuts off the corner of his robe. And he holds up the corner of his robe, and it's by, in some sense, God is teaching us that the robe that is torn from Saul is now going to be handed into the hand of David. For that kingdom will be passed. The anointed power, the Holy Spirit is no longer with Saul, but it is with David. And we see that here now. Samuel comes wearing a robe, and that is the moment that Saul knows. And then what's the comedy here? Well, the comedy in some ways, I find it fascinating. (laughs) Verse 15, maybe it's just funny to me. I say that a lot because some things are funny to me and no one else. My wife tells me that all the time. But verse 15, it says, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? I just find this hilarious. It's just, it's such a comically crazy scene. Samuel says to Saul, why have you wakened me up? Really, like, what is it now? Have you ever been that with your kids? They come, well, you need that. What is it, right? You know, I've been dealing with you for years and years. I've told you this for year after year after year. You haven't listened to me at all. And now, after I'm dead, you got to bring me back here? Like, why have you disturbed me? Seriously, again? That's, that's, that's the tone I read into it, at least, okay? I, Samuel is probably much more calm than that than I was. But, but Saul is imploring him, brings him from the dead in some ways, and he says, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Seriously? And Samuel asked Saul, uh, Samuel asked Saul, sorry, that's what he said, verse 15. says, I'm in serious trouble, replied Saul. Yeah, no duh. The Philistines are fighting against me, and God has turned away from me. He doesn't answer me anymore, even though the prophets were in the dreams. So I've called on you to tell me what I should do. 
And Samuel's, again, he's got those two, like, like you've got to be kidding me, right? He, he cannot believe this in some ways. No one listens to you, right? No, God is not speaking with you. Like, are you not seeing uh, the, the obvious answer here? Saul has been pursuing his own ways for years. He's been trying to kill David for years. David, uh, Saul, and Doeg slaughtered the priests at Nob, just killing the holy priests of God. Saul has done what he has wanted for years and years, and now he wonders why God is not answering him, right? And we almost think, oh, Saul, you're so silly. And yet, how is that not like you and me at times, right? Samuel is this kind of passive-aggressive counselor in some ways, you know. He's uh, kind of like, all right, dude, you know, don't you get it, you know? He's like, oh, man, I have a headache. Oh, my head hurts so bad. Well, maybe the fact that you've been slamming your head into the drywell over and over might be a key as to why you have a headache, right? Saul says, God isn't listening to me. He doesn't hear my prayers. No one will be for me. No one answers me. And he, and he says, well, this is, this is ridiculous, I know in some ways it is for, in the scripture, we do find situations of righteous men like Job who question as to why they don't seem to have an answer. And yet for every righteous man as Job questioned what, why certain things happened to him, there are far too many Saul's in life. We wonder why we ourselves find ourselves too, so distant from God when we've been enjoying our sin for so long. It's like wondering why and how you've gotten so far from God when you've been running in the opposite direction from Him this whole time. How did I get over here? How did I get so far from God? I feel at times I maybe have that same kind of spirit or I see that in people's lives as we, as we go through. We avoid the Word. We avoid church. We avoid community or accountability. We attend to our businesses, our jobs, our hobbies, our bodies, more than we do the truth of God's word and his people and our relationship with God most high. Oh, but I feel anxious and alone in my life, but I avoid the people of God. I stray from the flock and wonder why I can't find my way back. God, where are you? You seem so distant from me, we say. And God says, I'm here. I've been here the whole time. You just haven't decided to look up or turn around or repent. Our good shepherd, it says in the word, will leave the 99 to chase after the one who has gone astray. We know that that is his heart of the good shepherd, but it is our sin that causes us to go astray. It is our sin that causes the rift in that relationship that, that is that area. Let's, in some ways, call out sin for what it is. Repent, confess, return to the, go- return to the Lord. And so, is what we see Saul never really doing throughout this whole time. And even in this moment where he's faced with this incredibly difficult situation. And so, in verse 17, this is kind of what Saul or, and Samuel, they have a little conversation here where Saul calls out to him in, in verse 15 saying, I don't know what to do. In verse 16 and 17, Samuel answers. Look at verse 16. Samuel answered, since the Lord has turned away from you and become your enemy, why are you asking me? Samuel's saying, you know what you're supposed to know. You know God has turned away from you, and you know exactly why, Saul. Verse 17, and the Lord has done exactly what he said through me. The Lord has torn the kingship out of your hand, and he has given it to your neighbor, David. 
verse 18, for you did not obey the Lord. This is Samuel saying this, and did not carry out his burning anger against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this to you today. Verse 19, and the Lord will also hand Israel over to the Philistines along with you and get this phrase, tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. And the Lord will hand Israel's army over to the Philistines. What an omen. What a dark moment. What a moment that you would hear from the voice of Samuel's risen spirit like ghost form, whatever you want to describe it. That word says, tomorrow you will be with me here in Sheol. That's incredible. Incredible. And again, the irony is ridiculous in the sense that Saul is using a condemned means in order to access God's truth or in God's way or God's help. He's using a condemned means through a medium and witchcraft in order to consult God, maybe hoping and expecting God to answer him in a good way. It's ironic. It's ridiculous. It's, it's, it's pathetic. God's condemned vehemently in multiple places this aspects of ne- necromancy and witchcraft. It's, it's ridiculous. Tomorrow you'll be with me. This is his last meal. And then he goes on to have this last meal. It says in verse uh, 20, immediately Saul fell flat on the ground. He was terrified by Samuel's words, obviously. He was also weak because he had not eaten anything all day and all night. The woman came over to Saul and she saw that he was terrified and said to him, look, your servant has obeyed you. I took my life in my, in my, life in my hands and, and did exactly what you told me to do, the medium said. Verse 22, and please listen to your servant. Let me have some of the food. Let me set some food in front of you. Eat, and it will give you strength, and you can go on your way. He refused and said, I won't eat. But when his servants and the woman urged him, he listened to them, and he got up off the ground and sat on his bed. The woman had a fattened calf at her house, and she quickly slaughtered it. She also took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread. She served it to Saul and his servants, and they ate. Afterward, they got up and left that night. What a sorry last meal. Exhausted and finished, his kingdom is over. He himself is as good as dead, and Bill Arnold says it. And the woman feeds him his last meal, a banquet fit for a king who will no longer be king much longer. So to kind of bring this to an application and a conclusion, I want us to think a little bit about this. This chapter, like I said, is very unique. And so what is it that we make of all this? What is it that we make of this chapter? We'll kind of finish in a moment in chapter 31, but I want to take a moment to apply this to us today. What do we make of all this? It's strange stuff. I can honestly say there's not too many other chapters in the Bible that I've experienced with certain things like this. There's irony. He's using this condemned means in order to contact a prophet or priest of God, some wacky things. There's pagan witchcraft and practices and necromancy. And I think sometimes in our position today in modern America, we find ourselves feeling as if that is so distant in the past and so far away that we're kind of so modern and, and smart and scientific today that none of this ex- is, goes on in some ways. And so we're, we're separated from it. And, and we might ask ourselves uh, the question today, like, does this mean the mediums or necromancy or these kinds of things are legitimate ways? Like, is this real? I think the answer I would have for you is yes and no. I believe most mediums, and Pastor Mike Winger actually has a really good video on some of this, and, and he says that ultimately that most mediums, and I would believe too, most psychics or most necromancers or, or mentalists or, or, or these kinds of people and their positions, most of them are scam artists, right? 
they're specialists at reading the human person, they research, they have skills, they, they know behavior, they know tells, and they can read your mind or make you think of that, that hypnotists can trick you and use mental things to be able to, to, uh, to manipulate you. And, and for the most part, people are generally gullible with these kinds of things, especially wanting to believe something and be eager to receive an answer and will kind of take whatever, someone, whatever answer someone's willing to give them. I think generally, and for the most part, I, I think actually across the board, I guess I could say that mediums don't have power over the dead at all. And they don't have power over the dead to commune with it, your ancestor. They can't talk with your loved ones. Rather, I do believe that many of them talk with demons. Even though I don't believe they talk with the dead, they don't raise the dead or commune with your relatives, as they said, but in some cases, they have opened themselves up to the spiritual darkness and witchcraft and dark magic in some sorts uh, to be able to commune with the demonic realm. First Samuel 28, 12, this woman is scared. She screams when she sees Samuel. It is as if, in some ways, she doesn't expect anything to really happen. And in, in one side of the coin, it's almost as if she's expecting to scam another guy. Like she's just going to trick another person into giving her money and, and supposedly talking with whomever she wants. Or on the other side of the coin, we don't know from the passage, but the other side of the coin could be that she does have a personal demon that she talks with that impersonates whomever you want it to be. These kinds of things, I would say, still happen today. In 1 Samuel 12, as I said, that's kind of where I get some of those things from that. There are other passages in Scripture that speak about this. But ultimately, this fact is that God interrupts this moment in an extraordinary way. This is very strange, and it's not something you should try at home to speak with, right? And yet I think in some ways I'm trying to give you a pastoral and loving rebuke and a warning, right? For, for in many ways, preaching, as we said before, is encouragement, and yet I'm trying to challenge you as well trying to challenge the way and maybe your perceptions as to what we see around us on a regular basis. Uh, Ephesians 6.12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Spiritism, spirituality are on the rise in modern culture. That's actually statistically proven these days. New Age is extremely popular, even though there's literally nothing new about it. <laughs> it's popular to be spiritually open and aware, using all kinds of things that can be put under the guise of something that should be accepted or harmless, all kinds of practices, devices, chants, seances, techniques, whatever it might be, crystals or energies or forces, these type of things. The laws of attraction, if you do good things, good things will come back to you. It sounds Christian in some ways. The new age or Wiccan or witchcraft or demonic worship that we see in Hollywood promoted all over the place. Tarot cards or palm reading, mentalism, hypnotists, psychic healers. I, I mean, you could go on and on and on and on. Pew Research actually says those who ascribe to the majority of the Christian faith, who check boxes of saying, I'm Christian and I believe Christian things, actually often will also likewise check boxes for New Age beliefs, including beliefs surrounding reincarnation, astrology, psychics, and the presence of spiritual energy and physical objects like mountains or trees. Roughly one, six in ten American adults accept that at least one of these New Age beliefs, as well as Christian beliefs. 
It's 4 in 10 believe in psychics and spiritual energy can be found in physical objects, while somewhat smaller share belief in, in reincarnation and the astrology of sorts. And I think these things are popular today. They're very popular because very often when we have removed the foundation of society and many, much of our society has t- tried to run away from God and maybe what religion and the abuses of religion have done, we run and gravitate for a meaning something, for something that means something. Like there's got to be more than just regular life and spiritualism will often answer that. Spiritualism gives you what you want right now without any sacrifice or repentance or sin, right? Spiritualism gives you self-sovereignty, self-empowerment, and self-answers without the sovereignty of God or God's power at all. You don't have to humble yourself before a holy God. You don't have to repent of your sins and be willing to pick up your cross and follow Jesus with your life. None of that. You can just get your spiritual fix by being spiritual but not religious. And I know people use that phrase, and I get for why they use that phrase, spiritual but not religious. I understand that, and I think there are many good-intentioned people for that phrase. But I also know how people use that phrase. Just choosing the spiritual, feely things of life and avoiding the Holy Spirit, who is a person of the Trinity not just a force that we can use at our will. He's not just a genie in the bottle that gets me what I want. He's not the mirror, mirror on the wall, this magic thing, that fairest of them all, whatever you know, right? So sometimes the answers in life that we have presented to us in the Scripture are are hard and difficult and not easy. And yet often pagan practices or pagan ways to to kind of will, 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 will give us the answers we want. And it isn't always the answer we need, and it certainly isn't always the truth, but it often feels better and it gives us a quicker answer to the difficulties that we face in life. We pursue in a variety of ways the New Age Peter Pan theology, thinking positive things and happy thoughts and pursuing this way of spiritualism will get me to fly wherever I need, right? Versus a a often aspect of the true power of the Holy Spirit that empowers us for godliness and goodness and a life following Jesus with our lives that might lead us to things that are difficult and hard, might lead us into challenges of picking up our cross, like I said, and following Jesus. And I've traveled around the world and seen different places and explored different ancient cultures. I've, when I visited Honduras and Mexico and you go to these ancient practices and you visit these amazingly beautiful and ornate ancient temples in Copan or, or Chichen Itza, these amazing towers of, that were built by the Mayans, actually much after even Jesus and during those times. And yet, I remember visiting one of these giant stone structures that looked like a... Like a um, a giant uh, turtle. Yeah, there was an indentation on top of that turtle where they said that they would tie down the child, and as they killed the child, the priests would collect the blood at the bottom to be sacrificed to their deities and their gods. I was talking with Josh just recently in his time in South Africa where he experienced talking with missionaries who are experiencing in some of the remote areas of Central Africa where, where child sacrifice still occurs. And so I think sometimes we think of these things as so foreign and distant from us that we think none of this goes on anymore. We are, you know, sophisticated, right? Whether we are sophisticated or not, or one way or form, or whether there's just pagan practices with Christian Christmas wrapping around it, delivered to us to be taken, we forget who our God really is amidst this all. 
We're often looking for an answer or something quick, a quick fix or something that will help me feel better about it myself rather than recognizing that God, the God we serve, Yahweh, is transcendent above this all. Our God is not to be manipulated by different aspects of the earth or using bones or certain things to be able to manipulate the God or doing some sort of rain dance that will get God to get me what I need. The false gods and the worldviews that we see experiencing here in the gospel, they are within the imminent frame of the world. These gods that are being worshipped here are within and bound within the limits of this world. They are subject to this world. Our God is beyond it all. That is why we worship a God who is transcendent. That is so important because He is above all. He has created all. There is no one like our God. We sang it earlier. He is holy. He is all-powerful. God is not created by human hands nor controlled by human hands. God, Yahweh, Jehovah, exists outside the frame in which we exist. God is beyond our influence and control or manipulation. We are not his puppets, and he is not our cosmic vending machine. He is holy. And yet, as Lars was saying earlier, not only is God hallowed and holy, and above all things, he is our Father. We don't... We don't have to go to all of these alternate ways in order to find meaning and answers in the world. We can go right to the throne room of grace. You can go right to your heavenly Father because He, in faith through Jesus, He calls you His child. That's the beauty of it where rather 1 John 5, 14, and this is the confidence that we have as His children that if we ask anything to His will, he hears us. Isn't that incredible? He hears us. The God who is hallowed and holy and above all and transcendent is the God who has taken the form through Jesus Christ to be among us, to dwell with us, and through the Spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit lives now within us, empowering us to live like Jesus and to be and through all of life and to build his church here in this place. And so it is foolishness, and I think we often act like Saul when we look for different ways in darkness and in disguise. We look for answers for God in pagan practices instead of simply just going to him, finding out what he says in his word and talking with him through prayer. And so it's in 1 Samuel 31 that we kind of see the end of this. It says in verse 2, the Philistine of chapter 1 Samuel 31, verse 2, the Philistines pursued Saul and his sons and killed his sons, Jonathan, Adinadab, and Melchishua. And the battle intensified against Saul, and the archers found him and severely wounded him. And Saul said to his armor bearer, verse 4, draw your sword and run me through with it, or these uncircumcised men will come and run me through and torture me. But his armor bearer would not do it because he was terrified. And Saul took his sword and fell on it. Verse 5, and his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, and he also fell on his own sword and died. Here's the Greek tragedy that we see playing out before our eyes. Verse 6, and on that day Saul died together with his three sons, his armor bearer, and his men. And we see then the Philistines take and desecrate his body and hang it on the walls of Beth um, Beth Shean, an actual, a city that we were able to visit when we went to Israel. They hang it on his wall. They cut off his head like David did to da- uh, Goliath. And yet there are certain men of faith of Jabesh Gilead that go in the night and take his body and, and take it away from those who are desecrating it and bury it in honor. And David eventually rewards them for this. But I want us to notice as we close here, 2 Samuel chapter 1. 
2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 17. How is it that David would respond to the news that King Saul was killed? The one who's been hunting him, the one who David has literally been running for, from for years. How is it that David would respond to this? Would he be like, yes, finally, I get to be king, right? This guy's out of the way, so I can now do what I want. Is that how David's going to respond? Is David going to be celebrating the death of someone else, his own people? How is it that David responds to this? 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 17, David learns about the death of Saul and Jonathan, and it says, and David sang the following lament for Saul and his son Jonathan. Verse 18, and he ordered that the Judites be taught the song of the bow. It is written in the book of Jashar. We do not have this book within our scripture, although many say some of the psalms that are in the psalms today are from the book of Jashar, kind of this book that would have traveled among them that would have had different histories and songs of past battles and such. Verse 19, the splendor of Israel lies slain on your heights. How the mighty have fallen. Ever heard that phrase? How the mighty have fallen. We experience this. The mighty have fallen. The tragedy has occurred. When I think again of that darkest hour, the, the movie depicting the life of Winston Churchill, the darkest hour is a phrase that was used to describe kind of as an antecedent, an opposite phrase of his finest hour speech. Maybe you've heard of that one for. In that, it is the sense that he said that, that many years to come, the British Empire will survive and historians will look back on this moment and say that was their finest hour. And yet here, we don't see much of a fine hour for Saul. We see a tragedy. We see the darkest hour in all of Israel's history, perhaps until this point. Great King Saul having his last meal with a medium and a necromancer and dying and falling on his own sword as the Philistines ravage the, the nation. But it's in that darkest hour that many say is attributed to Churchill, but no one's quite sure where they believe the phrase comes from another phrase, where the phrase says, the darkest hour is just before the dawn. That phrase, the darkest hour, set alone by itself, can mean tragedy. And yet, in every tragedy, there is that comedy on the other side. For the darkest hour is just before the dawn. And in this tragedy, we know the storyline. We know that it is in the tragedy of Saul we find the beauty and the life and the kingdom of David the greatest king in Israel's history, the king who was meant to point us to the great king of kings. For it's in David's kingdom that all kings are to look to, to be like David, a man after God's own heart. And yet, it's in the words of Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 10, where we all began. And it's in verse 10 where she prophesies something that would come through fruition in David's kingdom, and yet would also prophesy what would come in the great kingdom of God through Jesus Christ. 1 Samuel 2.10 says this. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder in the heavens against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. And what will he do? He will give power to his king. And he will lift up the horn of his anointed. This anointed, his Messiah. He will lift up the horn, the victory symbol. The symbol of salvation and victory. He will lift that up in his anointed one. And he does it through David's life. Second Samuel is all about David's kingdom and the victory that comes and unfolds through it. 
And yet we know that these same words were quoted in the New Testament, speaking about a totally different king, someone that David foreshadowed, for David was a type of Christ. If you look at Luke chapter 1, Luke 1 verse 67, we see at the birth of John the Baptist, the one who is to proclaim the coming great Savior of the world. Zechariah proclaims and prophesies as he's filled with the Holy Spirit these words describing the great salvation that was to come. It says, verse 67, Luke 1, Then his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and provided redemption and salvation for his people. For he, look at this, verse 69, You recognize this? For he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Wow. David, hundreds of years before, this horn of salvation that is raised up to rescue the people of Israel and present to you a man after God's own heart, one, an anointed one, a Messiah, David, and yet that one who was meant to point us to the great anointed one, the final Messiah, the final prophet, priest, and king, the one we all look back to as our Savior, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For he's the one we look to, and he's the one we need. He's all we need. Go to Jesus with everything you have. Follow him with your life. Pursue him, for he is the horn of our salvation, the one that presents victory over the dead, victory over the grave, and victory for salvation, for we are more than conquerors in Christ. Let us close in prayer. Father, we come before you today praising you for the good gifts that you've given us, the opportunity that we have, even in this moment, as a group, as a corporate collective, as your church, to simply open our mouths and pray to you. That when we come to you in faith, you hear us. We don't have to go to anything else, any other place. God, we can speak to you. Thank you, Jesus, for interceding and making that possible. Thank you, Lord, for your spirit, for sanctifying us in holiness. Thank you, Father, for being the great sovereign Lord over all, being our God. Lord, we need you in this moment. So many times we run astray. Forgive me, Lord, for that. Forgive me, God, for pursuing the direction of Saul. God, give us the heart of David. Give us the heart after your heart. May we pray that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, we pray in that direction. We pray in that with faith. May you be glorified in these things. Bless these people today. Encourage them. Help us to to praise you, knowing that everything that comes in this place, everything, all that is true, we can say amen to. Amen and amen. In Jesus' name we pray.